Welcome back to the next part of this Truth and Rhythm episode. Be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. Also become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you so much for your interest and support. Enjoy. And fantastic well, voyage, you know, mm -hmm. uh, 1980. What a landmark. Um, you mentioned it, so just keep on with that. Uh, what do you remember yeah. about about uh, you know putting it together in the studio when it came came to be? Well, again, we had our listening sessions, and you know, songs had been picked, you know, for the for the album. Actually, uh, Voyage was kind of uh, created in the studio, but uh, what happened was um, I had two different bass grooves that I've been working on on t two different demos, and neither one of them seemed like they were living by themselves. So in the studio decided to put these two bass grooves together and it clicked. And so we developed the, the, the B section that, you know, that I hadn't come up with. And the idea of Fantastic Voice came from this movie. We had been out on the road and we had seen this movie we were watching on, on our uh, a bus uh, called Fantastic Voyage. And for some reason that came back uh, when we were talking about this particular piece of music that we were working on. And as a result, it was the last song that we cut uh, for the record because we had already done I Need You, Your Love's on the One. We had done Say Yes. We had done all these. And Dick was like, you know, I need, you know, I just need one more. And the one more that we came up with was Fantastic Voyage. So, um, you know, the, the um, it was a conglomeration of all of us kind of helping, but the the the, the basic track, uh, you know, was the baseline, uh, which I uh, came up with and developed, and we put that together. What about some of the phrases like slide, slide, slippity slide, and all that that you guys came up with? Do you remember working on that? Yeah. Um, God, uh, actually, the way that came about, we were working, we were at my house, uh, the singers, uh, me, Mark, Tommy, and Timar, were working on some background parts for the track, for, for, for Fantastic Voyage. And Mark, because rap was beginning to really happen at the time, he said, why don't we, why don't we rap? I said, Mark. I said, I don't want to do any rapping because we're singers. I said, the only reason rappers rap is because they can't sing. So I said, well, I have no interest in that at all. So we argued about it. I said, well, the only way I would be interested is if we did it in a core way like the, uh, I think of the, the, the Mathis brothers uh, back in the 50s, they used to sing and talk in harmony. Uh, I might have that name wrong right now, but uh, they were uh, 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 four, four, 
brothers, black guys who sang harmony and, and, and talked in harmony. I said, the only re reason, way I'd be interested if we did something like that and we did it and talked in harmony. So if you notice all the harm, the, the, the things that how we're rapping is in harmony. Everybody has a different note and we're harmonizing, uh, and, and voice and and we put that together we came up with all of that uh, the four of us uh came up with that because we got on a roll and it just went from one thing to, to another and of course the silly stuff uh and toto too and uh all that stuff came from team Iyer or myself because we were always the silly ones but that's how that came about it so we took it back to the studio the next day and nobody knew that we did it. And we went in the studio and everybody just, it just blew everybody away. And so they were like, wow, how did you guys come up with that? We said, well, this is how we explained how we did it. So after we finished the record, if you, I don't know if you knew this, but the rap only appeared after the second verse in the middle of the song. Did you ever know that? Okay. Well, when we took it to Dick, he was so blown away. He said, you know, the rap, has to go up at the front because he said that's so dynamic that that has to be the opening of this record and we were like dick we don't want to do that because we like it being a spies in the middle of the record he's like you know what i'm making an executive decision <laughs> and guess what it was at the beginning of the record he was right because it just blew up uh and that was part of it but it was very it was so unique and so uh innovative in what we did with that that it just he was right. It caught everybody's attention right away because that's how the song opens. Hey, come on, come along. And it's like, wow, here we go. And so he was right, but we would, we may have spoiled it <laughs> had we done it the way we wanted to do it. But he was right. And I told him after that, but I said, Dick, you were right. It, it was the right thing to do. Put it at the top of the song. So that was, that was, uh, Dick was good at that. He, he saw things sometime that we didn't see. Uh, that was one of his strengths. He, he knew talent and he knew how to find, you know, he, he could, he could smell talent, you know, so he had some very, very strong talents as a manager and, uh, all the things that he did for and with Lakeside. Mm. And, uh, Lakeside got the production credits on that record too. Yes, finally. Well, we took over after uh, the first two albums that Leon uh, produced and we co-produced with him. And we were learning uh, how to produce because we weren't really producers at the time. We were learning. And Leon, Dick needed somebody in the studio with us who could guide us. And so Leon was very good. I learned a lot from Leon as, as a songwriter and a producer. And so he got so overwhelmed with working with everybody at Solar, including Lakeside, Midnight Star, Whisper, Shalimar. I mean, you name them, he was working with them. So he, uh, Dick said, well, you know, uh, I'm going to put you guys, you, you know, uh, in charge. So he, he asked me if, um, if I would be the one to kind of be in charge. And the way it happened, you know, he talked to me. And he said, if it came down to, you know, just talent, uh, then you and Steve are basically equal. But he said, you know, you being a little bit more responsible and not as a party guy as some of the other guys, uh, that's kind of how I ended up uh, with the, the, the head production uh, gig with Lakeside. And we didn't, it wasn't something we talked about. Uh, it was put on the, on the album as produced by Lakeside, but... Uh, the production was basically done by myself and Steve Shockley. And of course, everybody had ideas, but Dick said, you know, you, you can't produce as a group. 
He said, you're never going to agree on things as a group. Somebody has to have the last say. And so that's why he had to designate somebody, you know, who had the last say. And it was myself. And then he said, you know, who would you uh, want to be in, in that coast uh, production production seat? And I said, Stevie, because, of course, Stevie, you know, is a fantastic guitarist, songwriter and arranger. So we were the ones that basically were in charge of the production from uh, Fantastic Voyage through uh, my last album, which was um, Outrageous. Uh, that was the last album I uh, participated in. So after that, I don't know who took over. It probably was Stevie and whoever else they brought in. But uh, for those albums, it was myself and Steve. We were basically the production. And actually, we went to the group one time and asked them if we could get production credit. And they said, no, uh, we didn't ask for more money. We just asked for production credit. And it was a no. So we said, OK, well, it is what it is. And we were just trying to do what was best for the group because we were always going to do our best. Whether We didn't get paid extra or anything. We just were the ones that did the lion's share of the work. So that's kind of how that turned out, Scott. And how did the band tend to operate in the studio? You know, did you guys play a lot together as a band or separate tracking or how were things put together? At that time, you know, beginning with Shout of Love, we were tracking, you know, we would go in the studio, everybody had the, you know, the uh, uh, baffles around them, the guitar with the, you know, on the bass and drummer, he'd be baffled in and everything like it was it was like that. Uh, and then, you know, we would lay the basic tracks and then we would clean up tracks, you know, by going in and cleaning up the parts on the guitar, the bass or whatever needed to be fixed and then doing overdubbing. But all of our basic tracks at that time were done uh, with musicians playing. Uh, we didn't actually start using drum uh, machines like the OBX and stuff like that until the uh, Outrageous album, which is when <clears throat> I started to kind of grow apart with the group musically because I thought Outrageous was more like Midnight Star sound than it was Lakeside sound. And I said that to the band. I said, you know, we have a style, but we seem, and, and Dick was all for this because, you know, they had just hit with you know, No Parking on the Dance Floor. So that was a platinum plus album. So Dick was interested in anything that was sounding like that. So uh, some of the stuff that we had was sounding like that. So Dick was all in. And to me, I thought we were losing our musical identity. So uh, that's kind of when I started losing interest because, you know, once you have a, a sound and once you have a, um, musical direction, you have to, you have to finish the course. You have to do, you know, whatever it is, you know, you have to continue doing what you do. And that's, that's all you can do. Cause once you jump ship and you start doing something else, which is out of your character for you, I, I don't think success will ever be there. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and, you know, I think one of the other characteristics that made Lakeside unique uh, was, you know, the not uh, having uh, horns, you know? Yes. Uh, and uh, I think that also helped the band transition well to the 80s because the horns took a back seat in the 80s as synthesizers, you know, kind of right. took that spot. Yeah, well, so, our, our, our philosophy there, Scott, was that 
we didn't want to put anything on the record we couldn't reproduce live. We didn't have horns. So whatever parts we got to put on the record have to be able to be produced by synthesizers, guitars, or whatever we're playing. And that's why Lakeside sounds like the records, because nothing on the records we can't produce live. And that was something we went into the studio. You know, it's got to be something we can produce live. And that's that has really paid off for us because, you know, a lot of bands now are, are you know, using digital uh, uh, enhancement on stage uh, on a lakeside concert, good or bad or indifferent, whatever you hear is live. <laughs> okay. There's no help coming from anywhere. We are completely live. And some nights we are on like you know can amazingly sounding like the record and then of the those nights and you know you got a couple of flaws here and there but that's to me the live experience you know you hearing people live i don't want to go to a concert and people most of what you're hearing is coming from digital uh, sources i just don't think that's right uh especially us we don't come from there all the gr groups we grew up with cameo uh sos Barcades, Confunction, we came from playing. There, there was no such thing as digital enhancement growing up on the concert scene where we came from. So a lot of people have adapted that uh, theory today, but Lakeside is still live and in color. All the way live. Beautiful thing, yeah. Flying without yeah. a net, you know. Let yes, sir. Yeah, and sometimes you, you know? yeah, when you <laughs> when the net's not there, you find it, you see it sometimes. But we laugh about it, yeah, because you're gonna have guffaws sometimes, train wrecks here and there, and, and it goes with the territory. But we always find a way to get out of it. So it doesn't happen very often, but you know, anything can happen live, and that's what I'm talking about. It's the live experience with Lakeside, good, bad, or indifferent. It is live. And that that record um, with Fantastic Voyage, what a one-two punch that started off with too, because your love is on the one came right after yeah. it. Yeah, know? buddy. Oh man, we were killing. Uh, I mean, you know, and those those songs today, your love is on the one, uh, is still a crowd pleaser, and it's it's even funkier live than it is on uh, on the record, in my opinion, because all those guitars and all that stuff is hidden. And it's heavy, so I enjoy playing those those songs live. They're they're just great great songs to play. Well, speaking of live, Otis. So back then, you know, uh, I'm sure you were out with just about every group. I'm wearing this shirt. I wore it in honor of Lakeside because you know you guys are. I don't know if you can see right below brick. Uh, oh, I see Lake, it. Yeah. Lakeside, yeah. There you go. So you probably played with most of these bands that are on here at some point. Um, who uh, who were a couple that you thought just killed it often here like the barquets you know but who were a couple from them that you just thought you know, oh man killed? early on we did our first when we uh, all the way live came out we went from doing uh clubs six nights a week for 1200 bucks to one night 30 minute shows for 2500 that's the difference in how quickly your uh financial situation can turn and we went out with the barcades on our first major tour doing arenas uh and we were with the barcades uh rolls royce uh uh evelyn champagne king and they barcades took us under their their wing and kind of uh you know became big brothers to us and they saw to it that we got uh 
sound checks. Opening acts didn't get sound checks in those days, but because we were touring a lot with the Barcades and for some reason they befriended us and and liked us, they always saw tours that we did. So they were hitting at that time because we learned a lot from those guys in terms of how to perform on the big stage. And uh, so we were mentored by them and we worked with you know some of the some of the best guys that i've ever worked with is the bar case i think rick james was was really good live but uh, i got a story about rick um we played with him at the capitol center uh i think it was in 83 um <clears throat> and it was sold out and it was a bud fest we were on the same bud fest basically the same acts for several uh, uh dates and we had a date in washington dc at the capitol center and then we had a date the next night in atlanta at the omni and so uh and this was when uh, uh midnight star was was hot with uh freakazoid and and no parking on the dance floor they had just broken and their record was on fire so they were on the show and so they went on before us and this, I mean, the stage was hot and we, we always looked at other people's shows before we went on and, and we were like, we were back in the dressing room. It was like, man, we gonna have to work tonight. <laughs> Midnight Star lit that stage up. So that's how we would do it. We'd take it as competition, you know. So we went out and we stomped. And so Rick had to come on after us. And I mean, Rick had a, a bunch of hits. I don't know why it was so upset but we we left the stage pretty hot for him so the next night in atlanta uh when we get there the promoter of the bud fest his name was michael rosenberg he came to us in a lot in the dressing room and he wanted to talk to us and say you guys uh if you could do me a favor tonight and not use your uh your effects because we had uh teardrop lights and pyro and and things like that that you know that you know helped enhance the production. And so he said, cause if you do that, you know, it'd be a big, big favor to me. Cause Rick was very upset with you guys last night. Uh, he didn't like the fact that you use all this stuff and your guys show was, was, you know, as good as it was. And so we told, <laughs> we told Mike, we said, okay, Mike, as soon as he left, we said, uh, yeah, right. We go, we're not going to use. So we went out there, we used everything we were supposed to use. And, in the middle of the show, we were just getting ready to do I Wanna Hold Your Hand. And there's a little confusion on I'm 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 stage right. So on the left side of the stage, there was some stuff going on over there. And so we come to find out after the show that Rick James had his people trying to take the piano off the stage and remove equipment during our show. Well, of course there was some uh things that happened that you know uh our people had to defend us on stage and uh and nobody removed anything i'll say and we finished our show but dick was mad i mean not dick uh, uh rick was mad because he he had told uh mike to take care of it and mike i guess he took care of it but he didn't take care of it because we went ahead with our show and of course we did a good job that night and so uh we we heard it from from mike after that but we didn't care we're just trying to do a good show we are performers and what we always did it's just like we were we saw midnight star burn we said well we know we're not going to go out there and try to cripple these guys we we have to do a better show that's how we took it when somebody went on before us and lit up the stage our job now is hey we got to go out there now we got to work because the stage is hot so we got to get the stage back to us instead of him doing that he was like well i'm going to try to cripple lakeside so that their show is not as dynamic and as good as it is and we were like no
we're going to go to work. And that's what we did. So I, I'll never forget that story because Rick and I were pretty friendly at that point. He never spoke to me again. <laughs> wow. Never spoke to me again. Mm-mm. Wow. Did you guys have shows after that? Or was that the last show with Rick? That was, as, as I remember, that might have been the last show. That might have been the last show. I don't remember. And if it was, it was uneventful. It was nothing like that. Uh, if there were other shows after that, but that might have been the last show in uh, in uh, Atlanta at the Omni. But it was it was eventful. But you know, you're, you're not taking anything off. And the other thing about it, we all shared equipment on that show because it made the set changes quicker. So the the equipment, except people's axes and stuff and common stuff. It didn't belong to anybody. Everybody used the same thing. So he's taking stuff off the stage. He's having his people take stuff off the stage that didn't belong to him. So we're like, no, we're not. And see, we didn't find any of this all because they handled it pretty good. Our crew handled it really well because they kept it. You know, we knew something was going on. <laughs> we didn't know exactly what until we came off stage. But our crew handled it very well because nothing was removed from the stage and there were no other incidents. So I'll give them credit for taking care of their business. Wow. Yeah. Um, you mentioned oh, that. Go ahead. I was going to tell you another story when we were talking about bad experiences. We only had one other bad experience, uh, and it was with Frankie, Beverly, and Mays. We were in Louisville, Kentucky, and it was supposed to be Lakeside. Uh, and we had been on the show with him a couple of days before that, by the way, and get kind of heated up the stage. So when we get to uh, uh, Louisville, um, we get to the sound check, and, and and when I tell you the stage was humongous, it was enough to accommodate about four bands. When I tell you it was humongous, I mean it's no understatement. It was supposed to be us. Um, uh, what was her name? Oh, I can't think of her name. I can't think of her name. It wasn't Phyllis Hyman, but it was somebody like that. And she ended up being sick, so she wasn't there. So it ended up being just Lakeside and Frankie Beverly and Mays. So when we get to the uh, arena for our sound check, Frankie's stuff is set up so far to the front of the stage that we we didn't have room to set up basically the band, let alone the singers. So it was enough room behind them to set up two bands. So we were like, why are you set up here? Well, this is once once we set our stuff up, we don't move it. So this is his, his people. So obviously he was under they were under directions. So we got in touch with the uh, promoter who at that time was uh, Al Heyman, and uh, we were t- like, "How Al? We got nowhere to work." Uh, and he, he said, "Well, you know, the, talk to the stage manager. Y'all work it out." He never had them move the stuff. So Lakeside, this is the only time we did not perform. Uh, we got paid, but we didn't perform because we said we're not going to perform under these conditions where we can't work. And you can put two bands behind him and barely can put one in front. And so he was the only person to perform on that show. And a lot of people were upset because they were people went to the box office that were there to see us and they wanted their money back and stuff like that. But again, this shows you that some people, you know, instead of you, you know, lifting your game up, and performing instead of trying to cripple someone else's performance, uh, we never did that. When we were we were headlining, it didn't matter how hot a group was before us. Uh, we never tried to, you know, uh, hamper them in the show that we had with them. After that, it was just we knew we had to go to work, and that was always our attitude. It doesn't matter how good they are, we have to be better. And that was, you know, and Dick called us the baddest band in the land. And we still hold that title because, I mean, we still get the job done. Hmm. Did you uh, make a lot of TV appearances? 
Well, most of the TV appearances that I, I was in um, when I was in the group were the uh, Soul Trains and the uh, uh, Dick Clarks. And actually, we had done Soul Trains since our very first album, which didn't do anything. But I did, uh, with Frank, that had I didn't if I didn't have you, because Dick and uh, Don Cornelius were very good friends. So automatically, his groups were going to go on Soul Train. We didn't actually go on Dick Clark until Fantastic Voyage. That was when we finally uh, got a chance to go on Dick Clark because I guess we weren't big enough or whatever. And then we went on there twice. We, we went on there for um, uh, Outrageous and we went on there for the Fantastic Voyage album. And that's our only two appearances on there. Now we did some other local shows and stuff like that, but uh, nothing I can remember uh, bigger than that during the time I was with the band. You mentioned I want to hold your hand and... Mm -hmm. um, you know, that was uh, seemed like so much of a, a left turn at that time, you know, to do a remake, to do something down tempo. Um, what was the uh, thought process, you know, as you guys moved in that direction for that particular project? Well, we were in, on, on the road somewhere and we were in the uh, dressing room and I just started singing I want to hold your hand and we slowed it down we did it kind of bluesy and everybody was like man that's a good idea so we took that ran with it when we got back home and got in the studio that's what we did and what we had basically come to the conclusion of you know I want to hold your hand is a love song but because it's so up tempo you get the whole love story involved so we said we're going to slow it down do it as a ballad and we're going to exploit the love story in I want to hold your hand. And that's how all that basically kind of came to fruition. We put it together as a real love song with the ballad in it. And that is really one of the uh, crowd pleasers when we perform it live because it's kind of a rock kind of a thing going on with it, you know. And, and when we play it, we play it bigger than it is on the record. So it really, uh, people really, really enjoy the version of uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand. And a lot of people didn't know it was us because I know we've done some gigs and people say, you, you guys recorded that? And he's like, yeah, we, and they asked us what album we tell them. We said, well, they're going, we're going to get that because they didn't know. They might have heard the song, but, you know, Lakeside been known for funk. They probably never put it together and said, well, that, you know, uh, it's, it's Lakeside. They, they didn't know. So now that they know, that's a record that they go and they, they buy now because they really like it. But it was one of my favorites on the album. Uh, I really thought it was a great version. And I met Paul McCartney uh, one time and um, I gave him the CD uh, and uh, uh, his wife told me that he really liked our version. So that was that was quite uh, a, th a thrill. I can imagine it must have been a thrill, especially kind of going back to a little bit. You said you had some rock influence and. Oh, know, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because I grew up on rock and roll. I grew up with all that stuff, man. And for a while there, you know, me and, and my brothers and our little group of people, all we did is go to rock shows. We went to see, Yes is actually my favorite band. And I've seen them, I don't know how many times. The first time I saw them was in Dayton at Hair Arena. And I was uh, a fan ever since. I mean, I've seen the Stones. I've seen Rod Stewart. I actually uh, opened for Rod Stewart in France in 1986 at the Uh I was an opening act. Uh, for him and uh, my business partner, Michelle Elizabeth, who was uh, very good friends with the promoter of that uh, uh, European tour, uh, put me on the show. And it was really a favor because I had no records out and I was a no-name guy. I was just Otis Stokes, so nobody knew me. And I didn't expect to, you know, do anything but 
open for Rod Stewart. You know, I wasn't going there with any expectations of killing the crowd because I'm playing unknown music and I'm an unknown artist. But they were um, very polite. And, you know, they applauded and stuff. And I did my set and I got off and the great Rod Stewart came on. But he shared the stage with me. And I'll never forget that because uh, he didn't he told me he didn't see the show, but he heard I was very good. And I, and uh, so we had uh, uh, he had a party and a dinner after that that we went to. And, you know, just being around a, a guy like that, uh, it was just unbelievable. One of the high, high points of my career. You know, how did it come about that you took on doing a solo project? And, you know, what were your aspirations? Well, I always wanted to do a solo project. And two things I wanted to do. I wanted to do a solo project. And I wanted to see if I could do it and play all the instruments on it. And so I accomplished both. Unfortunately, uh, you know, I, I did a single on there, which was a remake of uh, I Wish It Would Rain by The Temptations. And... Um, you know, I uh, did it with a video that accompanied it. It was a very good video, by the way. And um, and it didn't really do much. It did okay, but it didn't really do much. And the record didn't break because we were with a uh, distribution company called Raging Bull at the time, which was owned by Joe Isgro, who I don't know if you ever heard of him, but he was uh, in charge of record promotion on the West Coast. At one time, he was the main guy that if he had your record, your record was going to be a hit. And he had been involved in all that payola stuff. He uh, actually did some time for it, uh, a lot of stuff. And we we met him after he had gotten out of jail and he was getting back into his business as promoting and everything else. So he told us he could do it, and he uh, he didn't have the power that he once had, we found out, uh, because at one time, if he said the record was going to play and it was going to be number one, it would be number one because he had that kind of power. And so we we were aligning ourselves with him in hopes that we would be able to get some of that same magic, and it didn't work for us. But um, I, I I did everything on the album. There's one guitar, I mean not guitar, uh, saxophone solo on it that um, a friend of mine uh, played, and that's the only instrument on there that I didn't uh, that I didn't play. Did it take you a long time to put that together, doing all the parts? Yeah, it did. Um, but because I knew what I wanted on everything, I would take it track by track. I'd finish a track and then I'd go to the next one, you know. Um, and it was really an experiment because I didn't know if I could actually do it. But I did. And I think uh, I did a good job. Uh, the only thing I didn't do is produce any hits. And that's always your goal when you go in the studios to produce some hits. And it didn't work out that way. And a lot of it had to do with, at that time, uh, you know, I was older. And, you know, this music is, is, is youth-oriented. And so once you get past a certain age, uh, they're really not interested in what you're doing. I mean, and, and, and case in point, you can, you know, Stevie Wonder and Earth, Wind & Fire and Lionel and all these people are still putting out music. But guess what? None of them are getting any hits because their season for hits are pretty much in the past. And that's just the reality of it. It doesn't say anything else than that. It's not to be an indictment against their talents anymore because they're still multi-talented because they still go out and Stevie is still Stevie and he can still sing and play great. But people are not interested in their music of today. And uh, I had developed a um, a radio show, which I actually had uh, done everything, and I had 13 stations uh, on it in the South, where I was doing uh, what I call the Classic Artist Network, and I was 
I was uh, basically playing all the uh, the older artists, I used to call them classic artists, their newer stuff. And this was going on in 2000. And I uh, was playing stuff by Rick James at the time, who had some new stuff out, Prince, uh, Stevie, uh, um, Lenny Williams, all these people had new music out, but it wasn't playing anywhere. So I was trying to create a a venue or a place for it to be because if I could have gotten this station syndicated the classic artist network then it would have been um, targeted to our demographic which is the baby boomers and so youth is not our audience you know the the the, the millennials are not our audience even though they know our music and they will listen to it when they play the old stuff but they're not interested in hearing anything new from us. So the only way we can do it is to create another venue, another outlet for the music. And that was the purpose of the Classic Artist Network. And I still think it's a viable concept, but I have not been able to get the right person involved with it because I said, like I said, I was doing this in 2000, 2001. Well, when I was doing it then, Usher and Mary J. Blige and a lot of these people were very current and still playing on all the top pop radio stations. Well, guess what? Now they're classic artists and Usher's not playing on regular radio anymore and Mary J. Blige. So the same thing is happening to each generation of artists. So the Classic Artists Network is a concept that will go on forever because Justin uh, Timberlake will be a classic artist one day. Uh, Justin Bieber will be a classic artist one day and will no longer be relevant to the young audience. So this is a concept I believe could go on forever, but I have not been able to find that one person or company or situation that can take it to the level that it needs to be. Well, I love that concept, Otis, because, uh, you know, I always love new material. You know, yeah. I always want to hear new stuff from the artists that I've always loved, you know. Me too. So, yep. uh, yeah, having a venue for that that really exposes it and encourages it and supports it, fantastic. Yeah, I, I'm hoping that it still will have a place somewhere because, like I said, it, it, it to me, it it's, can go on forever because everyone has their season as an artist. And some seasons are longer than others, but sooner or later, your season will be over. And then, you know, you'll be able to live on as we have lived on with our catalog of songs. We can still go out and perform and we can still, you know, make money that way. But a uh, record sales is basically a thing of the past. You, you can sell a few if you sell them, you know, when you're performing and stuff like that. But it's nothing like what it used to be in the day when we were really selling records. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, back in the days when, uh, you know, Lakeside was scoring uh, more hits with things like Something About That Woman, which is another track. Yeah. I wanted to touch on another great one um, on that same record as I Want to Hold Your Hand. Mm hmm. Um, yeah. That's, uh, that's written by Steve Shockley. And uh, interesting story about that record. We were uh, in the studio. We pretty much had everything together, the vocals and everything was on it. And Stevie was sitting at the board and we were playing the track. And all of a sudden, he muted all of the uh, the drums and all that in 
in those parts where you know when when the drums stop well there used to be drums throughout that song until we were like man that's bad and so we we started doing it that way and that's how the song ended up being the way it is where it starts off with that uh, guitar and then comes in with the drums and then when he goes into there she goes again that's when everything drops out except the the uh, hand claps of the rhythm and the guitar stuff and then when it gets back to the second part of that verse the drums come back in that used to be drums throughout but it worked that it was better with the drums out in those because it gave it that little push and that little surprise thing you know that was an accident that was him just playing with the buttons and <laughs> and that ends up how the record is that we actually put out and it became a hit so that's that's a little trivia for that record wow <laughs> another happy accident yeah it really was because we we're like man that's bad <laughs> Because we were like, man, that's bad. We need to do that. So we we plugged it into the uh, the board, and we didn't have to do it anymore manually because you know like those uh, uh, total recall boards where you just put it in there and you record it, and you have to do it manually anymore. And that just became the way it was, and that's how it ended up on the record. But yeah, that was something that you know nobody knew it was one of those like you said, happy accidents. And you guys, you know, definitely had uh, not only the identifiable sound and style, uh, but also the visual element on the album covers, you know, um, mm -hmm. you know, with the artwork and the right. costumes and things like that. Uh, was yeah. that something um, that you took any any part in in terms of, you know, the way it was presented or, you know, how did that evolve? Well, we came up with the concepts, you know, like the first one we decided because Shout of Love was something that kind of lended itself to the married men and, and, and Robin Hood and stuff. We took that theme as the concept for the first album. And then going forward, because we liked it, we decided every record was going to have a different theme, you know, and uh, the Rough Riders was the Cowboys. And of course, Fantastic Boys was the Pirates. And then we became the, uh, uh, the uh, what was that? Uh, something about that woman. We were the genies and that kind of thing. Uh, I mean, that was actually uh, Your Wish Is My Command. And then we had um, um, Untouchables when we were the G-Men. And so each time we, you know, went and we rented costumes and we did the whole thing and got sets and all that and did it. And so um, I wanted to correct uh, something, you know, Fred Lewis's brother, Dennis, uh, may he rest in peace. He's gone uh, also about three or four years ago. Anyway, um, for some reason, everybody was thinking that he did all our album covers. Well, he, he did... Our, our first uh, Shot of Love, Rough Riders, Fantastic Voyage, and uh, Your Wish Is My Command was done by this uh, graphic artist company called Gribbit, G-R-I-B-I-T-T, -T, and it had a little uh, exclamation point. That was their logo on their name. And they did the first four album covers. And then uh, we did the throwaway album, which we called it for RCA, which was, uh, um, uh, what is it called? Uh, Keep on moving straight ahead. We had so many albums, I forget what they are sometimes. But keep on moving straight ahead was done by RCA. We don't know who did the artwork for that, but it really wasn't good. We didn't like it, but we had nothing to do with it. So what had happened was Fred, Big Fred's brother, Dennis, he had been pitching Dennis for us for like at least two or three hours. Man, my brother control. You don't know this guy. And he shows us stuff. And the reason we didn't is because we were thinking, well, man, if this guy's not good, then we're going to have to fire him. And that's going to be a problem with Fred because we got to fire his brother. So we talked about that. So finally, he talked us into to seeing Dennis. Dennis came in, man, and he drew 
the Untouchables album, and we were like, what? You drew that? I mean, it was so lifelike. And he drew his brother, he drew his friend so well, it was like a picture. I said, well, you drew him the best because you've been looking at him your whole life. But it was amazing. From, from that point on, Dennis became our graphic artist. He did every co cover after that. And I think he did it past when I left the group. But that's why he uh, didn't get the job early because we didn't want to have to worry about if he wasn't that good. Uh, if we'd have to fire him, and that would have been a problem. So we avoided that until we really saw this guy's work, and he really, really was good. And uh, he made us believers, and like I said, he became our graphic artist from that point on. I got you. Yeah, yeah. that was an impressive package for sure, yeah. Untouchables. Um, yeah. And another one of my very favorite Lakeside Tracks, Raid. Um, what do you remember about laying that one down? Well, Raid, man, we were trying to find something that was in a nice groove. It was a party record. And, uh, you know, we, we were a party band. You know, we like to do songs that make people dance. So Raid, uh, the whole concept was, you know, this is a Raid. Uh, you know, the party's on. When we come to town, that's it. Lakeside's here. The party is on. So we, we were able to, 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 to put that on record, and that's one of our biggest records too and people love it live because it's just a party record we have a ball with it too but yeah that was fun putting together and again that was on the album where we pretty much wrote everything together on the untouchables album so we all had a hand in uh, all those tracks on that particular record well raid too seemed to go well with the g-man theme you know like yeah, it's going to be a, exactly a, a bust it, you know yeah well, that's what they do they they yeah. raid they raid joints you know the uh all the speakeasies and stuff like that that's what they did so um but yeah i had uh <clears throat> actually i uh did i started doing demos outside of the band because you know i wanted a different musical perspective on things you know so what i would do i found this guy monty seward and uh he was a very, very talented uh, piano player. And I kind of met him. I don't remember if I met him before, but I know I met him coming out of Solar one time. And uh, he knew I was, so we we, touched, we stopped, stopped and talked. And so he asked me to take a look at this deal that he got from Dick Griffin, because Dick was trying to sign him as a songwriter and a uh, publisher, you know, publisher songwriting uh, deal. And so I looked at the deal for him and I told him, I said, uh, uh, Monty, don't sign the deal. I said, because it's not in your benefit. It's not in your uh, best interest. And he didn't sign the deal. So after that, we became really good friends. And so I wanted to do uh, demos. And he had the studio over off of 54th, uh, on 54th off of Crenshaw called CBA. And so I said, well, can you find me some musicians? Um, you know, because I want to do some demos. He said, yeah. So I came to him. And, and, and a real love is actually one of the demos I did uh, with CBA, and the musicians that he provided for me uh, was uh, Cornelius Mims, uh, Derek Oregon, and Tommy Oregon. Uh, 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 Kipper would always be there, but he was do background sometime, and he had uh, Rex Salas, and um, that was my 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 band, and so I started cutting. 
Oh, and one time uh, Rex wasn't available for the studio, so he he, he substituted him with uh, uh, Chucky Booker. And then one time Derek, who played the drums, wasn't available, and he substituted him with Jonathan Moffat. I don't know if you know who Jonathan Moffat is. He was a drummer for a lot of Michael Jackson's tours. And so these are people that I kind of brought through the solar doors, you know, and got into the business because I started using them for different things, like on Climax, and I used them on stuff. And so they were so amazing as musicians that people just started using them and they went on to do just about everything with everybody that you can imagine in fact tommy organ uh the guitar player was on uh michael's last uh tour this, this is it tour uh that never happened because he's on that video where they're interviewing everybody tommy is on and i'm like that's tommy organ but he was getting ready to go on that last tour and uh, uh unfortunately it didn't happen michael passed but uh, those are the guys that i brought in and i just introduced them to other people and their talent was so big that they were able to make their own way so I want to. I want to. I always want to uh, uh, talk about them because uh, they went on to do a lot of things. And in fact, Tease was the name of the group, except for Monty. And I uh, was going to sign them. I had something working over at MCA Records with uh, Gerald Busby, but so, for some reason he backed out of the deal. Speaking of these solar acts, you know that mm -hmm. was quite a stable of acts that you guys were part of uh, there, and um, you know you branched out and collaborated with some of those. Um, Mm -hmm. whispers and so forth right can you tell us about uh, some of those experiences and also climax of course well um you know i was a a, a studio uh rat i was always in the studio uh even when we weren't working because leon and i were very very good friends and so i would always be in the studio with him just watching him work with whoever dynasty shalimar whispers whoever and so um they were having a listening session for the whispers and they used to always have it at the studio where you play your stuff from you know the demos on those big speakers in there so i had a, a, a song i've been working on called jump uh, jump for joy and uh, they liked it so uh steve and and, and little fred uh, helped me with the song and uh, we produced that on the whispers i can't think of the name of the album it was on right now but it was one of the earlier albums and then uh just being around Working with uh, working with um, Leon, I was able. He wanted me to co-write the song that he was doing um, with Shalimar. Uh, Somewhere there's a love, and so uh, just being in the right place at the right time gave me opportunities to do stuff. And so Dick would be at the studio. He'd come by whenever who was working, and he come in. He see me all the time in there. <laughs> He's like, you're always in the studio. I see, yeah, I'm trying to learn. So I was just trying to be absorbed, you know, and learn and, and see how it's done. And so uh, uh, those opportunities, uh, especially after, you know, doing things with Lakeside and, and being kind of, you know, in charge of the production of Lakeside, he, um, uh, hooked me up with this guy, W.G. Garrison, who was out of Baton Rouge, and he had a group called Seventh Wonder. And Leon and I co-wrote, they had a, a pretty mild hit called The Tilt. And I uh, co-wrote that with Leon. And then I wrote a song called Stop Before You Break My Heart. And I did that on Seventh Wonder. It did okay, but nothing huge, but it made a little noise for them. And uh, they went on and, and W.G. got them other producers and stuff like that. But then that led to um the climax uh 
deal with Dick. Uh, he had seen this all girl band, and um, there was a, a woman used to work with him in A and R at Solar named uh, Margaret Nash. Everybody called her Sissy. She was married to Graham Nash. Uh, the uh, the uh, wrote the song. I, I can see clearly now. Uh, was that that wasn't Graham Nash? Jo Johnny was, Nash. Johnny Nash. Yeah, she was married to Johnny Nash, and so she was had been working with. Uh, uh, she actually found Climax, and she brought him to Dick. So Dick was thinking about. Um, you know, doing something for me, giving me a project. And so uh, he took me to see them at their rehearsal place and uh, they played for us. And uh, so when we left, Dick said, what do you think? I said, I think they're pretty good. He said, you think we can do something with them? I said, yeah. So he said, uh, you want the project? I said, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I didn't care who they were. I was going to do the project because it would have been an opportunity for me to produce. So, um, we um, started working on them, and I um, uh, co-wrote a lot of songs with Steve Shockley uh, for the first album, and we didn't get a bite um, off of anything we did. So second album, uh, I wrote the uh, title song, Girls Will Be Girls, and I wrote uh, If You Let Me on there. And um, Steve did some of his own songs in production on that one, and he really just kind of split it up because Jimmy and Terry did a, a song or two on there, and other people were where he was just trying to see who could get something, you know. And that's how that started and got me with Climax. Unfortunately, um, you know, we never we never got a hit. You know, I thought we were doing some good stuff, but you know, there's just no formula. Everybody goes in the studio thinking they're making hits and it doesn't always turn out that way because believe me, if everybody knew the the, the formula, uh, nobody would put out anything but hits. But unfortunately, there's no tried and true formula. You just go in with what you think are good songs and good production and you do your best and, and see how it turns out. So it didn't uh, work out for me with Climax at all. But uh, along the way, I learned more about producing and writing and those kinds of things. So I, I continued to grow as an artist. Well, maybe it wasn't as big as, you know, being in the ladies' room, but never underestimate the power of a woman was a killer track in my estimation. Yeah, and, and, and Bernadette and some of the others wrote that. That was uh, uh, really the name of the, uh, the first album. It was, it was a killer track. And I thought, you know, that would have done something myself. But again, you know, you just never know how these things turn out. You know, it's just uh, 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 throw the dice. You throw it out, you do your best, and you hope that uh, people will like it like you do. And sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. Hmm. Yeah. How would you uh, sum up your your composing process you know uh, what do you draw inspiration on and and how do you put a song together uh, a lot of it has to do with life situations sometimes they're not necessary life situations but you create stories relative to life you know like love stories and you create uh situations between characters and stuff like that and usually if i'm writing a ballad i'm usually writing it on a piano or a guitar if i'm doing funk or up tempo i'm usually always doing that with the bass uh, because that's always the foundation for something that you're trying to do that's going to be funky or up-tempo. So usually when I do, that, that's kind of my writing style. I write, if I'm sitting down for a ballad, I'm going to do it a certain way. If I'm sitting down for something up-tempo, it's going to be done a totally different way. And then I usually come up with melodies, um, you know, for the hook. I usually come up with the hook first, and the hook usually have a name or something that is going to be the story. 
uh, for example, nine and teal. Well, now I'm talking about a party. So now everything, the story and the melody for the, the verses are built around that. So I'm sure everybody has their own uh, 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 method of writing, but that's mine. I just, that's the way I create. I usually will come up with the hook. Rarely have I written uh, lyrics to the verses before I came up with a hook, because the hook to me is the the basic uh, foundation of the story. And you can tell the story around like, I need you. Well, that tells you pretty much in the title what the song is going to be about. You love somebody, you need that person, and so forth and so on. You know, real love, as again, it's a love song. So we're talking about how love is and how strong it is. And it's not always real love, but when you find it, you know, uh, that's what the song is about. So it's, it's various ways to do it, but that's the way I find that works for me. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinslift.net. Thank you very much.